a piece of literature that you're most likely familiar with. You probably read it or skim read it in high school or college. Uh, it's entitled The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. We, uh, we understand this story. It's a, it's a, a kind of a cultural phenomenon in our, in our, in our culture because of um, its roots, deep roots founded in uh, the American or the, the creation of America and the Puritans that came here. Uh, if you don't know the story, um, we're, we're, we're introduced to a, a woman named Hester Prynne. Hester Prynne uh, came over uh, to colonize the United States and in doing so uh, lived in a Puritan colony. Uh, she came by herself as her husband um, tidied up the affairs back home. And in doing so, um, he went missing, and they assumed that he was dead. And the story, the foundation of the story lies in Hester Prynne's love affair with the town pastor. All right? Not a great example for American culture, but nonetheless, uh, Hester is becomes pregnant, and... Um, they, as a Puritan colony, are seeking godliness, they're seeking holiness, and so therefore they judge uh, Hester Prynne, making her wear a large A on the outside of her clothing to identify her as an adulterer. Now we know this story because culturally we use this as a metaphor a lot for public sins in the lives of people. We will say about these people that we know, maybe their premarital uh, sexual relationships or their adultery or their divorce, we might even identify that as their scarlet letter. And we would say things like that. And, and oftentimes that is just to identify the public shame and the pu- public um, ridicule that oftentimes they experience in those situations. And I want us to think about that this afternoon because I feel like a lot of times in the realm of singleness, we identify singles as bearing the scarlet letter. We think about them sometimes as if something is wrong with them, that they have created or, or caused some um, thing to happen to them which has caused them to remain single therefore something is wrong with them in their lives maybe they're cursed by God maybe God is punishing them or or for for some reason and I think that we have found a um, even a, a a pet project as a sense for some uh, singles where we come alongside them and we feel it's our obligation to uh, to connect them with someone else and and help them get married But what I want us to see from Scripture, what Paul wants us to see from Scripture, is that singleness, and the word that I will use today, celibacy, is actually a gift from God. That we shouldn't be ashamed of it if you're a a single or unmarried here today. It's not anything that you should be ashamed of, because God has blessed you with such a gift. For some, being unmarried is a short-time temporal situation. For others, God has deemed that unmarried state upon you, that celibate state upon you, as a gift to use for His glory. And Paul wants the people in Corinth to understand the very aspects of marriage. And so all of chapter 7 is a treatise on marriage. How we should deem marriage. Last week we talked about how we should look at the intimacy between a man and a wife. 
That just because there's sin and sexual sin in the culture, does that mean that marriage in itself, the the married couples and partners should abstain from that intimacy? We don't need to swing the pendulum all the way to one end and just uh, claim or declare that all married couples should live in abstinence so that they might seek a holy life. Paul says that is wrong. But in the end of chapter uh, 7, verse 7, Paul declares himself as something different than being married. He says in verse 7, Yet I wish that all men were even as I am myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul's identifying himself as an unmarried man. And we're going to dive into what that means. We can understand the importance of a chapter like this for the church, not just in Corinth, but for us to understand that as we look across our congregation and other congregations, we can identify people who are single and who are married and view them as important and valuable pieces to the body of Christ. That God has just as much uh, use and purpose for single people as He does married people. And what we will see is that Paul will make a strong case that the single people in the church today have greater opportunity for kingdom work than married people do. And he'll explain that as we look today. Now, as I said, we're going to begin. I wanted to give some uh, a definition for you this afternoon as we look at, number one, the candidates for celibacy. And I want to use the word celibacy instead of singleness because I feel like singleness has been diluted in our culture. Singleness has become a phase of life when a child reaches adulthood, but it's, it, it's trans, transitioned or morphed into a phase of life which disdains marriage and promotes sexual promiscuity. When you are thought of as a, quote, single, that is oftentimes what the culture is thinking. I'm living my life as a, uh, as a single. I'm enjoying life. I, I'm not interested in marriage. I want to go do what I want to do and sleep with who I want to sleep with. And of course, the culture has made such a definition relative. Back in the 1990s, a very well-known movie that came out was entitled Singles. It was uh, immersed with celebrity actors and actresses of that, cult, of that time frame. And the description on Wikipedia for this movie says, Singles centers on the precarious romantic lives of a group of young Gen Xers in Seattle, Washington at the height of the 1990s grunge phenomenon. The film focuses on the course of two couples and their rocky romance, as well as the love lives of their friends and associates. You might, uh, if you've never seen that movie, you might think of the show Friends. Again, another example of the, the single relationships that people live sleeping with who they want to sleep with as single people. This is not what Paul's talking about when he's referring to the unmarried. In chapter 7, he is talking about the idea of celibacy. Celibacy is the practice of remaining single with a commitment to sexual abstinence and a focus towards spiritual devotion. 
It's important to define these terms so that we can come to look at and understand what Paul is talking about. So who are the candidates for celibacy? Well, uh, for, to begin, I want us to think about those who are in premarital abstinence. Premarital abstinence. Premarital abstinence is, again, a time where we uh, married people have lived up to a certain point and we are devoted before our marriage begins to remain sexually pure. Paul will address the virgins and the sexually pure later on at the end of this chapter. And in, in, in kind of identifying these things, Paul has already made the, the, the command in chapter 6 verse 18 for all of us to flee sexual immorality. So those who are in premarital abstinence are fighting day by day, seeking to live their lives in purity sexually so that they might enjoy and celebrate the gifts that God has given them on their wedding day. But even those who have made the the critical mistakes, the moral failures of sexual sin, can still enjoy premarital abstinence in confessing their sins to God and trusting by faith in the work of the Holy Spirit and, and of Christ in their lives. Therefore, a repentant person can practice premarital abstinence as they confess their sins and trust that their sins have been forgiven. But I call this premarital abstinence because they are not pursuing singleness or pursuing an unmarried state in their life. These are people that are pursuing marriage and therefore would not be candidates for celibacy because they believe that God has called them to be in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex in the covenant of marriage. So we have premarital abstinence. These people are not a candidate of celibacy. But then we have post-marital celibacy. Post-marital celibacy. Now this is the category that I think Paul fits into. And last week I told you that it's most likely that Paul was at one time a married man. Paul states in the New Testament that he had progressed in leadership in Judaism before his conversion to Christ. He studied under the renowned uh, rabbi Gamaliel and he was considered a member of the Sanhedrin. Well, because of this, we would understand that the requirements for Paul, who was then Saul, would to be married. But his post-conversion to Christ, one of two things happened to Paul. He was whether widowed or he was divorced. Now we can imagine why he might be divorced in this situation for him converting to Christ and leaving that form of, uh, of, of religious practice... Or he could have been widowed. We, we don't have the answer to that. But what we do see and what Paul is declaring about his own life is that he is now considering himself a post-marital celibate. He is committed to this lifestyle of being unmarried, or as you might call, single. And in that celibacy, he is committed 
to refrain and abstain from sexual activity outside of marriage. Therefore, he is practicing celibacy. So we would then identify those who are unmarried celibates as those who are currently unmarried because of separation or divorce. And you might ask yourself, well, what about widows? Well, I think that's exactly why Paul classifies verse 7 and verse 8 where he says, Yet I wish that all men were even as myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain as I am. I think the best interpretation of verse 8 is that he's saying the unmarried are those who are uh, those who have engaged in separation or divorce from their spouse in distinction with the widows who their spouses have passed away. Both he is recognizing as people who commit to celibacy in their life. And it is a great um, reflection and command for us here today. So, you have premarital abstinence. One of our young people are here today. My prayer is that you would be choosing and, and striving for premarital abstinence and purity. Some of us here today are um, widowed, and some of us here today are now separated or divorced. And in your life, you have committed to not be married again. You have chosen to remain single. And in doing so, you are committed to serve the Lord faithfully as a post-marital celibate. You probably just think of your, you didn't think of yourself as that. And this is a great thing to celebrate and it's a a great truth to understand and have defined for us today because God uses all these people that we have mentioned for His glory. One famous widow that we might uh, reflect upon is found in Luke chapter 2 verses 36 and 37. It was a prophetess named Anna. In verse 36 it says, There was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fasting and with prayers. Here this woman Anna, married for seven years, now a a widow, serving in the temple faithfully unmarried, faithfully serving those who come to the temple for the remainder of her life. And then, of course, the last category is a lifelong celibate. The third group is a group that we can also identify because we know people in our lives that we would say that are unmarried and have continued to be unmarried throughout their lives. These are oftentimes the people that we uh, label as, uh, what's, we, we question what's wrong with them. We, we question, have they made poor choices? Are they hard to get along with? But the truth of the matter is that God has gifted this celibacy to them. They choose a life that never involves marriage. 
And in the Old and New Testament, much is discussed about marriage and divorce divorce and widowhood, but it's never mentioned much about lifelong celibacy. But when we get to the New Testament, we see the perfect example of someone who lived a life of celibacy, and that's the Lord Jesus. Since his adulthood, regardless of what the literal, uh, the liberal critics of the Bible want to say about Jesus' love interest, the Bible communicates that Jesus was a celibate. He was never married. He was never engaged in sexual activity. And although he does not teach on this personal issue in his life, it is reflected through his ministry. And what Paul wants us to see in chapter 7, verse 7, is that celibacy is a gift. And in understanding this gift, we need to see the value in it, church. We need to see the value in it so that we can encourage, to uplift, to build up and love those who are celibate. We should love them in a God-honoring way. So we want to ask two questions. Why did Paul desire that all men were celibate like himself? And why is celibacy a gift from God? Well, I think Paul is trying to teach us something. So I want to look at the value and the purpose of celibacy. The value and the purpose. If we're come, we want to understand what Paul is teaching, we first have to understand that the purpose of, in the purpose of celibacy, God has gifted this to a man or a woman, and therefore that person must live with contentment in God's gift to them. Paul calls it a gift from God. Being married is a gift, and we should be content in our marriages. Friends, if you're not content in your marriages, you are wrapped up in the temptations of Satan. Satan wants your marriages to be disruptive, and he wants you to be discontent in what God has given you. The very spouse that he's given you, the children that he's given you. And he wants to throw these uh, scenarios in your mind and in your lives where you would see maybe on TV or, or in relationships at work or, or on the um, social environments where m- maybe I'd have a better opportunity here or a better opportunity there. And he wants discontentment to slip in so that your marriages would be in trouble. Well, in the same way, those who are single or those who are unmarried, those who God has gifted with uh, the role of celibacy, should be content in that gift from God. It's a gift to benefit you. It's for your good. It's not to look upon you with dishonor. It's definitely not a gift that you should have scrutiny against or disdain. Matter of fact, from a supernatural standpoint, God endows these people with the gift of celibacy so they might be empowered to live with such self-control that marriage and uh, self-control in marriage or outside of marriage and intimacy that for some is overwhelming but not for them. In other words, God has endowed celibate people with a supernatural ability for self-control. Paul says in verse 9, if, you do not have if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better for them to marry than to burn with passion. 
Now, Paul uses the Greek word there translated self-control, literally self-power. That's what that means. Self-empower. It does not mean that power is in ourself, that we have some innate power to resist sexual lust. But instead, God in Himself is empowering the celibate man or woman to overcome sexual desire so that they cannot be distracted by such things in order to serve the Lord faithfully until their last breath. But Paul gives the warning, but if they do not have that self-power, let them marry so that they do not burn with passion. Now the word burn there oftentimes means judgment. It oftentimes means the little burning in hell, but the context, which is important in how we read the Bible, makes it very clear that when we uh, exist as human beings and we are burning for passion for someone of the opposite sex, if we are unwilling or unable to have self-control over such desires, then it's most likely an identifying aspect that God is not calling us to celibacy. But those who He has called, those who He has gifted as celibates, will understand because they have been given a self-control over such desires that are unexplainable in their own strength. Consider that self-control for a second with me. In the, and let me use uh, fasting as an illustration. Fasting is a spiritual practice of self-control for a limited time and abstaining not of sexual intimacy, but of food. And we abstain from food as we fast for the sake of spiritual concentration and prayer, right? And fasting is a temporary discipline. And it's designed only for brief periods so that the person in that fast can focus with greater power on his devotion to the Lord. And what does God do when we are faithful to fast? He empowers us to overcome that difficulty. He gives us the strength in our own body. Just as Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and at the end He hungered. Even there we understand that God was empowering the Lord Jesus to overcome such a long extended period without food as a temporary discipline to focus the Lord on His obedience and His righteousness. Well, for the celibate, it's not a short-term self-discipline, it's a long-term self-discipline where God is empowering those to overcome sexual desire, emotional need, and companionship from a spouse for their extended time on this earth. It's fascinating. It's fascinating that God would do this. And by God granting such things, we understand that that we should not look with scrutiny or disdain upon these people. They are literally chosen for a special task. Celibacy is a gift from God. But the problem with the Corinthian church is they were commanding all the people to remain celibate, even in marriage, to abstain from sexual sin, which is wrong in the eyes of God. So uh, you can imagine if there was such a teaching going on that some of the people, even in married relationships, were considering divorce because of the great temptation of sexual sin and the choosing to be celibate or, or being taught to be celibate. So many of them were considering, well, what should I do? Maybe I should leave my spouse. 
Maybe I should just divorce him and live a celibate life. Because as we know, many of the ascetics, many of the, the, those that would choose such a life were being taught that celibacy would lead to a higher plane of spiritual devotion than most normal believers, which is wrong. So Paul has to come back to them. He has to undergird the foundation that God created marriage. He created intimacy in marriage as a beautiful gift of His design. He values biblical marriage and all it entails. So that's why Paul says it's, it, it's a gift whether it's a married situation or whether it's a celibate situation. God has given such a grand gift. He values a biblical marriage. He values a faithful celibate. Which leads me to my second point. That the value and purpose of celibacy is not only a contentment as God's gift, but a focus on kingdom work. Paul tells us that the very aspects of celibacy lead a person to be able to focus on the work of the kingdom. He calls it excellent or good. Look at verse 8 again. I say to you, to the unmarried and to the widows, that it is good for them. It is excellent for them if they remain as I am. Well, why is it good? Why is it excellent? Well, let's go down to verses 29 through 35 where Paul gives a grander explanation of these things. Paul says in verse 29 of chapter 7, But I say this, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that now, from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. This I say to you, for your own benefit or your own good, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now we have to be real careful here. We need to be careful because we have to understand that what Paul is saying is he's not devaluing marriage. He's not devaluing the role of a husband. He's not devaluing the the role of a wife. All he's saying is that it is excellent and it is good to live a celibate life because in that celibacy, you have less distraction for the things of God's kingdom. You have an opportunity to serve in a different role and a different way to expand the God's kingdom, to proclaim the gospel across the world than a married woman or a married man might have because you are untied to such things of the earth. I remember as a young father, not, not even a newly married man even, 
going on my first mission trips overseas. And the pool and the the difficulty of being uh, away from my family from eight or nine days. And the longing that it took, that I had in my heart. And the emotional stress of of being away from them and my uh, young child at that time, Grace Ann. And I remember flying home on the plane, just so anxious to be back to see them because I had not seen them for, for, uh, for almost eight days. And I was thinking about that this week, how different it would be if you weren't married. How different it would be if you weren't tied to a spouse and tied to children. Yes, your parents are back home and, and you love them, but there's opportunity that is unimaginable. That's why a great percentage of current day missionaries are unmarried. And the highest number of those unmarried missionaries are women. And the reason why is because God has chosen them and He uses them for His glory in that celibate life. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians and turn to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus mentions in a very similar way, teaching His disciples about the necessity of kingdom work and the distractions that can occur from those in the world. And He has this conversation in Matthew chapter 19 with His disciples about marriage. When they're talking about certificates of divorce... And they're having trouble understand, understanding what Jesus means. And starting in verse 8, he says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it had not been this way. And I say to you, verse 9, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, If, this, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, is it better not to marry? And he says... These words, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs. These eunuchs were born that way from their mother's womb. And then there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And then there are also eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Or, what sounds more familiar to us, he who has has ears to hear, let him hear. Now he's dropping a very profound truth on these disciples as they are contemplating the difficulty of marriage and divorce. And they're like, well, isn't it better for us just not to marry? And he brings to their minds a familiar understanding of the eunuch. The eunuch was a man, particularly who was castrated or impotent from birth. And he actually mentions three types of eunuchs. We have natural eunuchs. They are born without the proper function to procreate. And then we have man-made eunuchs. Those who would serve queens oftentimes physically were made eunuchs in order to protect the queen from any violation or sin. And then lastly, he says, those who, are ma- who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And we would call these not physical eunuchs, these are spiritual eunuchs. 
spiritual eunuchs. And believe it or not, there are people in church history that literally physically castrated themselves for the sake of purity and celibacy, taking the words of Jesus in this passage literal. Oh, well, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, I'm going to castrate myself. I'm going to mutilate myself so that I can devote my life to celibacy. But Jesus isn't speaking about physical mutilation. He's talking about spiritual eunuchs. Those who have devoted themselves to celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. If you don't know what castration is, feel free to ask your neighbor when, you're, when we're done today. But Jesus is calling people to serve Him. And He and Paul are recognizing God's gifts on those who are not content to marry anyone, who can practice self-control so that they can be uniquely used by the Lord to faithfully serve without the hindrances of things and relationships on this earth. These are the people who we might call spiritually castrated or committed to celibacy. Therefore, friend, celibacy is God's gift to you. Consider it a worthy gift coming from your Creator and King. And use that gift to focus all of your energies on expanding and growing the kingdom of God. You're not a blemish on the church. You're not a blemish before the eyes of the Lord. You are chosen for such a task, free from the need of a bond of a spouse. Free from being overwhelmed with sexual desire. Use the gifts that God has given you and focus on expanding His kingdom for His glory. Paul says in verse 35, again, that it is a a way to secure an undistracted devotion to the Lord. I found a quote from a woman named Margaret Clarkson. Margaret Clarkson, I don't know much about this woman, but I felt this quote was very applicable to this today. She writes, quote, Single, through no fault or choice of my own, I am unable to express my sexuality in the beauty and intimacy of Christian marriage as God intended. To seek to do this outside of marriage is by the clear teaching of Scripture to sin against God and my own nature. She writes, I have no alternative but to live a life of voluntary celibacy, chaste not only in body but in mind and spirit. And I want to go on record, she says, as having proved that for those who are committed to do God's will, His commands are His enablings. He will empower you. He will enable you to do what seems impossible if this is what He so chooses for you. Do not be embarrassed. Do not be discouraged. Do not feel a sense of inadequacy, friend. The social norms around you might not appreciate the gift that God has given you, but God sees you and has gifted you in in a special way. Be content in it. As she writes, be satisfied in what He has given you obedient to His will as long as the function of your brain and the rhythm of, the, of your heart continues. Consider it as a good gift and find joy and satisfaction in it. And a warning, if you consider celibacy the path that God might have for you, 
Do not choose this path because you're fearful of the hurt that relationships might bring. Do not fear this path because the loneliness that you want to avoid is before you. If celibacy is your gift, then God will empower you to practice it and sustain it faithfully. And secondly, church, let us consider the biblical instruction that is reshaping our views of this gift that God has given celibate persons. Instead of looking down on them, let us see them as a treasure. Let us encourage them in their obedience to God while they live a celibate life. Let us love fellowship with them. Let us encourage them and equip them to serve the Lord faithfully as they encourage us to serve. And finally, let us see the very position that God has given them and the calling on their life is a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ who was faithful to serve the Lord, His Father unto the end, being faithful to give His life as a sacrifice for sinners, and that the very celibate person is reflecting the faithfulness of their Lord for His glory. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these verses.